Hello, and thanks for tuning into the Scuttlebutt Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and today I'm speaking with Barrett Bogue. A common thread you'll see in Barrett's story hinges around communication as we unpack a few topics he's come to be an expert on, transition, the GI Bill, and starting a business. Barrett deployed back in 2004 in the middle of his schooling and upon his return came to understand why communication is so important, not just with our peers and family, but with organizations. He was dealing with his schools, employer, and family looking to help him, but unsure how. This understanding of the problem gave him the passion to fulfill a position he later held at the VA, and then later on, when he started his own company, Evocati, a PR and consulting firm helping companies communicate and grow their relationships with the military-connected community. During the segment on education and the VA, Barrett gives a detailed history of the GI Bill, which really helps to quantify the impact the GI Bill has had on our country over the last 75 years. While individual service members see a check to pay for their schooling every month, it's important to understand the larger impact that it has had on our communities and education levels throughout the country. The thread on communication is one we pull on a lot. When it comes to people, Barrett talks about something he calls radical empathy and how that plays a role in our transition process. On the organization side, Evocati is working to solve a problem I had never even thought about before. Barrett recounts a story of his firm having the pleasure of announcing that Fayetteville State was going to offer free tuition to any military-connected family. Yes, free. That's crazy enough of announcement to get headlines, but it's not quite as simple as just calling the local news. We walked through some of the programs he used that helped him hone his idea for a business, including Bunker Labs and the Stanford Ignite program. I've included links to all those resources and a few more that we talk about throughout the show in the show notes. But first, you've got to hear it from the man himself. Please enjoy this conversation with Barrett Bogue. Barrett, thank you so much for being here with me today. I've uh, this conversation has been a couple weeks in the works, and I've been looking forward to it as I kind of learn and read more about you and and hear about your story. I think from our conversation, the most interesting place to start would be you coming back from your deployment in two thousand four. Uh, you served in the Marine Corps from ninety nine to oh seven. Um, in the reserve with that one deployment. And you speak about that deployment as a pretty transformational time for you. Let's start there and then we can kind of work through uh, everything else that we got. Sure, Brock. Um, first off, I want to say thanks to, to you for the, this opportunity to talk about a military transition leadership and, and entrepreneurial journey. Uh, as well as for those listeners who are participating right now. So the I served in the Marine Corps Reserve, like you noted, and was deployed in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom Two. And you know the the transformational part of it wasn't the deployment itself; it was what happened when I got home. And so 
I was in the middle of earning my, my master's degree from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And I jokingly tell people I, I took a gap year to go spend it in Iraq. And when I- Not your typical I, gap year. No, it's not your typical gap year experience. But when I came back to the university, uh, which I, I proudly support. So for those who, who aren't watching right now, I have a, a Tennessee hat on. The, the university, the, the people there were incredibly supportive of me as a, as a military member and, and, and as a veteran and as a student, but they were wildly underprepared or unprepared to support my needs as a transitioning veteran. And so that's where my passion for engaging and supporting the military connected community was born. And I've, I've dedicated the majority of my professional career in that. And it's, it's also led to all kinds of, of other opportunities, both inside and outside the military connected community. But if I had to, to point back to a seminal moment in my 20s that really, that really influenced my trajectory for good, it, it would be when I came home from, from Iraq and not necessarily the, the deployment itself. You said that your university and maybe the people around you were under underprepared to help with your transition. Underprepared in what way? And yeah. maybe you can kind of flesh a little bit of that out as well as talk about maybe where we draw the line of like, whose responsibility it is for transition, you know, what lies on behalf of the people around us and the organizations that we are a part of, and then what is it that we need to own to kind of like show up and be putting our best foot forward, I guess? It's a great question. So <clears throat> when I separated, transition was a two or three day PowerPoint. And, and that's, that's all it was. And it was, you're drinking from the fire hose. Here's all the information you need to know. Good luck. Today's transition experience, while still not meeting all of the service members' needs, is a far better improvement. You have to look at your transition from a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset, that the transition from the military to the civilian sector is a growth opportunity, both professionally and personally. What I talk to, when I talk to transitioning service members, I tell them that transition is not an event, it's a journey. And those that are able to embrace the journey and understand that there's going to be peaks and valleys to that tend to do better and to embrace the ambiguity that comes with it. And, you know, trying to figure out where are you gonna live? What's, you know, what meaningful employment opportunity are you going to have? What's gonna happen with your family? Uh, for oftentimes in my sector, it's how do I manage full-time schoolwork while I'm earning my, my undergraduate degree while working 
while raising a family. Those are very difficult things to try and manage. And at the university level, you know, it was so early in the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that they didn't know what they didn't know. And it, it looks very different today. For example, the, the mental well-being needs of transitioning service members, uh, addressing um, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, anxiety and adjustment, um, military sexual trauma, like all of these things can come out in a university or collegiate environment. And their staff may or may not be prepared to respond to that. There's also just the matter of the GI Bill, which is a very different program today versus when I was in school. And it, it pays a lot more. Um, it, it, in, in some scenarios, it can pay for all of your education. Um, and so for an institution that really values enrolling student veterans, you want to ensure that if they value enrolling student veterans and they say that, then you want to see where are they putting that GI Bill money into their school. Are they reinvesting it back into programming for military-connected military students like spouses? Are they offering things like childcare? Right, because for today's student veteran, we're more likely to be married with children and working part-time or full-time. So in terms of the ownership, um, I, I do see it as it starts with the, the individual service member. And again, like I started off in answering your question, it's about the lens by which you look at your, your transition. One thing that I don't think that is really talked about, or at least I don't hear people talk about it, the differences in going through that transition period as a reservist from active duty. Um, when I was going through the Navy TAPS class, which is a very similar thing, I'm guessing week-long PowerPoint, drinking from the hose type mm -hmm. operation, in my class, there was a large handful of reservists that were in there. And I was curious and I asked, I was like, why are you guys in here? Are you guys all actually getting out at the same time that we are? And they said, no, we, they go through that transition class when they come back from deployment. So mm -hmm. they had just got back from a year in Africa and were like on this integration thing. And I was like, oh man, like that's a, a that's a very different type of transition than somebody like myself and, and probably harder, I'd even argue, because I, I've been living for four years as my nine to five, my, my everything is the military. There's not even a quarter of my life that's not affected by that. Whereas you have like been completely immersed in this for one year and then are just immediately dropped back into it. Mm -hmm. there's not really, it's an even harsher kind of drop off. And I, I sympathize with that. I, I think that that would probably be tremendously harder than maybe even a traditional active duty transition, I guess. It's definitely different. It's definitely different. And what I wasn't, didn't understand at the time was as a, as a military reservist, you're transitioning back into the civilian sector once a month. And so you go and 
And you go from, you know, in my case, a very um, academic environment from, you know, your dorm and you put the, the Marine Corps uniform back on and you go, I don't know, do a, all kinds of crazy stuff for your training. And then you come back, you take it off and the next day you're back in, in class talking about politics or, or whatever issue you're, you're, you've got homework or, or lab work. And it was a difficult, it was difficult for me to, to try and compartmentalize that in my, uh, this would have been my, my early to mid twenties, but learning how to compartmentalize that was eventually it helped me to, to better understand how to organize your and differentiate between your professional and your personal life. But you're absolutely right. The, the transition experience is different for military reservists. Although I think the shared experience that we have in the military crosses over whether you're reserve or active or guard um, that we all have. And there are still uh, elements of that transition that we all share as well. Um, I try and when I talk with transitioning service members, I say, I try and get them to think of themselves as a cultural exchange student. And you are, you know, from going from the military to the civilian sector is like going into a different culture as a cultural exchange student that you're about to go, you know, from school in the U.S. to a school in a different country and to, to thrive in that you need to immerse yourself in that culture and think about all of the preparatory work that you would do um, to be successful in that. It's the same, the, the same principles apply when you're transitioning to the civilian sector. This may be getting a little bit ahead of myself here because I think that the answer to this question might be in a lot of what you do now today mm -hmm. with your business, but how is it that you think that we can get across to people in these other organizations, whether it be your school, your family, your friends, how do we communicate to them the unease of being constantly kind of moved around and coming back into a life that maybe doesn't feel like your own? I think that you hearing your story, you are now more sympathetic to that because of having gone through the deployment. You're like, oh, now this is affecting me. Like, I get it. I'm reminded of when I was coming back from deployment, they flew, it, you had the option to bring out family members for the last three days before we pulled in. They give a chance to like, you see your family, you know, they bring them on the boat, they get to cruise on the ship for three days and it's, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And I remember my mom talking to me and they have to sleep in like the accommodations on the ship. And Do like, they really? it's the whole like family immersion thing, you know, yeah. uh, I brought out my mom and dad. My dad was super jazzed because he's former Navy, um, a different type of ship, but like, it was kind of like a, a reminiscent, like throwback for him. My mother, on the other hand, was like, 
I have earned an entirely new appreciation for everything that you guys do. Like you guys are suffering out here. These beds, she just, she still complains about her back hurting to this day from the sleep that she got at the ship. Yeah. It's like three days. I'm like, yeah, that's what I've been dealing with for seven months. Like, yeah. uh, But my point in all that is it really takes some immense exposure to even grasp what is being dealt with there. So to come back to my question, how, how do we communicate that better? What you described is called what I would call radical empathy and an understanding, uh, what we experience and based on that, having a very deeply personal connection to it that you can actually recall what that experience was like and recognize that and empathize with that. To to kind of facilitate that exchange. So let's acknowledge that there are misperceptions about our community in the workplace, in the you know the private sector, in the private the, the public sector, etc. I think for me the the one thing that is going to overcome those misperceptions is leadership. And I encourage the, you know, if you're listening right now, or for, for those that, that I've interacted with, I tell them like, we are, as a community, we are called to lead either in the workplace, um, in our families, in our communities, that the only way for those with misperceptions about us to understand the truth is for us to engage with them and to to demonstrate how those perceptions are misinformed. For many of us, and I am sensitive to this, talking about our military experience is the last thing we wanna do. You're done with it, you took the uniform off, you don't even want to identify as a veteran, you don't check that box if you're applying for the scholarship or applying for the job. I get it and I 100% respect that. When the time is right though, and there's an opportunity in a a workplace relationship or personal friendship, I would encourage you, uh, for those of you who don't wanna self-identify, to open up about your experience. Because what I have found is the more open that I am about what I experienced in the Marines and afterwards, the more I have in common with people that uh, that I work with and with the clients that we represent. And it leads to a much healthier dialogue with those individuals. I think that that's right. And finding that common ground, I think is, is probably a really important factor in kind of your reintegration, like the people that you've had something in common with are other people who are in, you know, the people that you've shared Iraq with, the people that you've been sleeping on the ground with for however long, the people you've been eating with, and you kind of need those lines out into the water of kind of the civilian population again to get linked back up with those people. And, and I think that there's 
probably more that people won't know the the ins and outs and you know they're not going to know all the regulations and all this stuff but I think that there is more in common there than I think most sure. people realize. But some people really want to get on their their high horse and say, "Oh, like you'd never understand." You yeah, know, look, like, Brock. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say, "Well, they owe it to us because we're the ones who served." Or the essentially, I would hope that what you heard was the opposite of an entitlement mentality. Um, was that rather an obligation mentality? Um, I, I don't expect people to, and the, the American public in particular to, I don't expect that they owe me anything just because I served. If anything, it was a privilege to, to be able to serve, uh, because as we can see, even nowadays, it's a challenge to get into the military. Um, and many people who want to join the military can't, they're disqualified for, for certain reasons. And, and sometimes it's for reasons that are beyond their own um, capability or responsibility. But yeah, I, I think looking at it from, I would challenge you, know, you and your listeners in saying that as a, as a community, we're obligated to go out and to, to demonstrate our value as as citizens and as as leaders a few minutes ago you mentioned the gi bill and mm -hmm. talking about the the different circumstances that that can pay for school and you kind of hinted and alluded to the differences and how it is to now like to use that as an opportunity to like dive into that after your time in the marines you went on to work at the va yeah. for some time serving variety of roles worked as an analyst all the way up to assistant director of gi bill oversight yeah. can yeah. you give us a little bit of history maybe about the gi bill the differences that you saw during your time uh, and, and anything impactful that really happened during that time so um anything impactful <laughs> well it was, it was like 10 years at va so we're not going to be able to cover everything but we can definitely talk about um, some of the highlights and before i do that most of us understand that the gi bill was in response to world war ii and it was signed by president roosevelt the genesis behind the GI Bill actually goes to after World War I in 1918, when veterans of World War I marched on Washington and the Capitol because the federal government had not honored their pension, their promised pension from service. It's called the Bonus Army March. And they actually you know, if you think, you know, if you've seen protests today, they kind of pale in comparison to the bonus army, which literally camped out in front of the Capitol. And, and these are military veterans, right? So, so people who were conscripted or volunteered to serve in World War I. And at the time, the, the public stance was service in the military was a citizen's obligation 
and you should not expect anything in return for that. The, the entire concept of around having a, a healthcare and a benefits infrastructure was very nascent. The, the bonus army in a very violent time in our history was actually cleared out by the US military. And the imagery from that and the public backlash was to such an extent that people said, never again, we're never gonna do that again. We're never gonna honor our military veterans again. And we, we do not wanna have that type of societal unrest. So now we move forward to World War II and in understanding what took place after World War I, the public policy concern was if we have 15 million men and women demobilizing at the same time, what do we do with that? Like where, where do those people go? Um, what can we provide so that there is some, there's no sort of like uh, economic imbalance because that's a significant uh, input into the American labor force and you didn't have a plan for it. So the concept of the GI Bill was started while we were still at war. And the first mention of a GI Bill or a, uh, it wasn't called the GI Bill at the time, but of a, of a comprehensive benefit package for World War II veterans was announced by President Roosevelt in a fireside chat. And it's about 1943 or 44. And a year later, the the GI Bill became law, and it was led in part by the American Legion. Uh, I would say that we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the Legion for, for spearheading that. <clears throat> so the GI Bill paid for school. Uh, it helped you purchase a house. It provided employment insurance, I'm sorry, unemployment insurance and a, a variety of other benefits. And it was and has been the most impactful um, social benefit program in American history, that for every dollar the World War II GI Bill paid, America received $7 in return and increased tax revenue. So it also completely transformed America's system of higher education. Entire schools doubled or tripled in size because of the, the number of women and men who enrolled in school because of the GI Bill. So um, as we moved from a uh, conscription to an all-volunteer force, the Congress uh, took away small slices of the GI Bill so that it became, I would say, and this is my personal opinion, a, a shell of its former self, a very small amount. When I was in school, I got 300 bucks a month, okay? And 9-11-2001 was a catalyst for, for our country and for the military. And because the active duty, reserve, and guard were essentially all one operational force in fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan for what would be you know, 20, 20 years, 
that the, the need for a more robust education benefit package was, was out there. So when I came back to the University of Tennessee, I was accepted into a program called the Presidential Management Fellows Program, which is a, a internship program that's sponsored by the Office of Personnel Management. And they place you in mid-level executive roles uh, across the federal government. You have to have a master's degree in, in order to get in. So I was placed in, I found this opportunity at VA in the office that administered the GI Bill. And I was a, a legislative analyst. And the first assignment I had was analyzing this piece of legislation from uh, then Senator Jim Webb, who was a Vietnam veteran, former Secretary of the Navy. He was the junior senator from Virginia. And his son was a Marine. And his son, I think at the time, was serving in Iraq. And he modeled the a new GI Bill for a new century. He modeled it after the World War II GI Bill. And you have to understand at the time, there weren't a lot of people using the GI Bill like you see today. And it wasn't really paying a lot. It was probably maybe two or 300,000. And with, a, with an outlay of maybe $3 billion annually. So when we did the analysis of this piece of legislation, we said, we estimated it was gonna cost $100 billion over 10 years. And we all laughed and said, there's no way in hell this is gonna become law. And a year later, it was law. And what started was uh, a journey in essentially creating a, a benefit program that tripled in size from what we had been doing. And we had about 18 months to, to do it. So that's getting into VA. But if we, you know, if you have any, I just want to stop there. If you have any follow-up questions to that, and we can talk about my, my time at VA. No, uh, that's all good stuff. I have read about the GI Bill and obviously have been a recipient of it. Uh, it's an absolutely tremendous program and the benefits are really, really fantastic. Um, really no reason why people shouldn't be using them. Mm -hmm. I didn't know some of those finer details, though. I think that it's worth going back and highlighting the, the point that you made there that the amount of dollars invested in the, the World War II one, like it was $1 of investment returned seven dollars mm -hmm. to that that is so so tremendous because you're you're investing in people who have like spent their time and lives investing in the country and like here's like an actual dollar figure returned because we're we're embedding these qualified and capable people to lead and and become more educated in the country that's so cool it is, and it continues today. It really highlights the transformative power of higher education. It demonstrates just how uh, hungry we are to, to better ourselves, to improve ourselves. And by the way, I don't think veterans are exclusive to this. I think you know, every American, everybody who's here wants to better themselves and pursuing a degree, 
um, is one of the ways to do that. And anytime we have an opportunity to remove those barriers to access, that we should seriously consider it and we should do so. We know that millions are using the, the GI Bill today, but we don't know the return on the ROI yet. Uh, we, we've probably got to get another 10 or 15 years before we can do a really effective longitudinal study. But I wouldn't be surprised to see a similar number for every dollar we get, you know, seven dollars back. I wouldn't, I would not be surprised if we saw a favorable ROI for the money that we're spending on the GI Bill. I would not. Well, and if it if it is similar, I just kind of pulled up an article from Defense.gov um, back. This is articles back from 2019, but it was talking about the 75 year anniversary of the yeah. GI Bill and the the closing sentences there's a bunch more here and i'll be sure to include the link in the show notes but the closing uh, paragraph reads as follows there are a few versions from which to choose nowadays with the most used being the post 9-11 gi bill since its implementation in august 2009 the department of veterans affairs has provided educational benefits to nearly 800,000 veterans and their families totaling more than 12 billion dollars mm -hmm. So, so not a, a similar not a, ROI yeah. on like a much yeah. larger dollar figure. Yeah. Like I, the the benefits. It was a bit scary at the time. I'll tell you, Brock, because I mean we didn't have any experience. I, you know, I was the 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 smart Alex, not knows recent college graduate. Everybody in the office was older than me, and they're like, "Congratulations, you now have." the most comprehensive change to your program in 70 years, you know, your budget to do this is, is pretty extensive, but you're going to go from, um, you need to expect to, to triple your workload, to triple the number of employees that you have and to triple your, your outlays. And you have really, it was really just 12 months to make it happen. It was a, it was a massive lift. It was. That's so fantastic, though. Um, uh, all of that work was certainly not in vain, and I think that we still see like the benefits of that. Yeah, I have one more question about education, maybe yeah. for people in general, but maybe specifically veterans, and then I want to hear about your time in the VA. The bar for education has slowly continued to rise. Mm -hmm an undergraduate degree is almost table stakes, you know, and, and I don't want to discount how important trade work is. And like the last couple of years, we're certainly starting to see that the pinch on trade work and a lot of people not opting to go for like the manual labor route and stuff to their benefit or demise. I don't know. Those guys make a lot of money too. Mm -hmm. um, how do you see maybe this, continuous need for more and more education impacting veterans over the next 20 or 30 years? You know, we've got the post-9-11. Yeah. I can only give you a speculative answer here uh, because I don't have any, you know, any data to, to inform my response. I will say that based on what we know today, women, veterans, who earn a degree are overrepresented compared to 
women in the military, meaning if the U.S. Armed Forces are, you know, approximately 16 to 17 percent identify as women, then the percent who go and earn a degree using the GI Bill or something, something else, a scholarship, could be anywhere from 25 to 30 percent. So I think the growth in the number of women who leave the military and earn a degree, I think that's going to continue. So I think that the, the military veteran population is going to continue to get to look younger and much more diverse um, by, by gender, by race and sexual orientation as well. You got you have another question? I was just kind of, I don't know if this is in the same vein of that. And if this is like not really where that's going, then I'm, I'm I'll just cut this segment, but does that imply that because obviously there's a large portion of dependents that are using the GI Bill of the person uh, of the actual mm -hmm. um, service member. Do you think that we will can like that number will grow and uh, to the point of like equaling? Like you're saying that women are overrepresented. Oh, yeah. Is that going to work up to whatever the actual amount of service members that are women? No, so what I mean is, uh, I see where you're going with that, and I'll, I'll acknowledge that in just a moment. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is that the more women, more women who serve will be more represented in higher education and pursuing a degree, okay? I got you. I, I think that trend's going to continue. The interesting thing, like you noted, like you said about the GI Bill, is that you can transfer it to a family member. What I want your listeners to understand is what that really means as an obligation. So the, and I know people are going to correct me here who are listening, but the last Civil War pensioner, the last person to have received a pension from VA from the Civil War was a dependent, and she passed away in 20. 16. Okay. When our country goes to war, we create an obligation that is going to last generations. So I believe that we will be paying GI benefits as they are today for people who are going to be alive in the 22nd century that we need to be looking at what what is the horizon in 2080 and 2090? That's the more interesting question for me. And I still fervently believe in in the value of an undergraduate degree. I think it's the great equalizer. Okay. And I will always believe in in the power of, of higher education. It's at the same time. Higher education is only as valuable as the amount of time and energy that you put into it, okay? Um, there is a role and a, a place for trade jobs that will always be in our country. And I value that and I, I advocate for that 
where I think it's in that person's best interest and where I think it's appropriate. And like you said, it can be very lucrative, especially when you combine it into like your own business and a business opportunity, you can do really well. I am interested in seeing what the effect of the gig economy, artificial intelligence and automation are going to have on both our economy and in the value of a degree. I don't know what that's going to be or what it's going to look like. I'm not a, I'm not a futurist. I read, you know, that stuff and I'm really interested in it, but my advice for if you're in this industry now, or if you're a policymaker is to, to, to practice strategic flexibility in responding to those needs. If you have to be a gig worker or a gig, you know, business owner, um, uh, an AI programmer or a video game designer, or heck, even a, you know, there are going to be whole ecosystems in the virtual world that we haven't even thought of yet that are going to require some type of higher education. I want to make sure that the GI Bill is able to help you earn that, whatever that, if it's a credential, if it's a degree, whatever it is, to, to be able to have that opportunity. So I think policymakers and higher education professionals need to be flexible in responding to that. Maybe you weren't going to, maybe we weren't going to go that far in the future, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at. No, I'm with you. I, I like that. I think that it is good to think optimistically and have, be, be optimistic about the future and sure. be planning for that. However, we need to, that doesn't, that shouldn't take away from doing things today. Correct. Too. Yes. I'd love for you to dive into a little bit of your time at the VA and maybe what you learned or took away from your nine or 10 years that you worked there. Yeah. When I talk, when I talk to uh, transitioning service members, I, I tell them that if you can start your career in the federal sector, do it. And if you can start your career at VA, definitely consider it for a variety of reasons. Number one, uh, there's stability and growth and advancement opportunities within the federal workforce. Um, number two, very competitive pay and benefits compared to the private sector. Number three, and most important is the VA is the second largest department in the federal government, uh, right behind DOD. I, you know, I think I said this to you offline in our first conversation. I think VA has the best mission in, in the federal sector to care for those who have borne the battle, battle and their widow and their orphan. Um, <clears throat> the challenges that you face and the complexity of the problems that you have to solve while at VA or another federal agency thus far has paled in comparison to what I have faced as an entrepreneur. If you can succeed in the federal sector and especially at VA, I promise you, you can succeed <laughs> anywhere. Um, and it has been, it, so when I'm reflecting back on my time at VA, it is a remarkably similar experience to being an entrepreneur. If you're given a piece of legislation and a program to implement at a federal level with 
um, millions of American citizens and you have White House level involvement, the pressure doesn't really get any higher than, than that. Like that's a very challenging thing to do. And nobody there really has the expertise of building out a, a program essentially from scratch. So you're all just kind of figuring it out on your own and you're all working together uh, to build out this program. And that's what we did with the post 9-11 GI Bill. We did not meet our community's expectations when we launched the post 9-11 GI Bill. There were significant delays and screw ups when we launched it. And that was because of some ineffective and inefficient planning on our part. But our response to that, I, I still think is one of the best stories never told is um, we were taking anywhere from three to four months to, to pay students. And by the time I left, we were turning around payments within 25 days. There's a lot of work that goes into IT and uh, SOPs and process development etc. And, and having that experience and, and that engagement for so many years was just across the board applied very well to the, to the things that I did after VA. And finally, because there are advancement opportunities, uh, you will have an opportunity to lead people just like I did. And I sucked at leading people. When I first started as a team leader, I thought that my model from the Marine Corps would be, you know, a one-to-one, -one, you know, transition right there. And I did not account for the, what motivates employees. I did not account for generational differences in the workplace. I didn't account for uh, politics in the workplace, right? Because when you're in the military, it's, it's, it can be apolitical, right? Um, and I had to learn a lot of those lessons the, the hard way in, in how to be an effective leader, which I still apply today at my company. So um, yes, getting into the federal sector is difficult. Yes, going through USA jobs is a pain in the butt. <laughs> yes, you will find people who fit that bureaucratic stereotype that you see in, in, in the comics and on TV. You, you will find that. But for the majority of, of those you interact with and for the sense of accomplishment uh, that you're going to do together, it, it's hard to find a, an experience that compares to that, except for your time in the military. It's a really, it's a, it's a, it could be an outstanding cohort experience for you. And for those listening, I just want them to know that every day there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who work at VA, who wake up in the morning and say, I want to go give my best effort for military veterans. I understand the narrative that's out there about VA, and some of that's deserved. I get it. For the most part, the majority of people that I interacted with at VA, they are just as mission focused as that Marine grunt who has to take that hill. 
it's interesting you talk about the stress level involved in implementing policy that affects, you know, millions of people. I find that, I don't know if comical is the right word. It's comical, not in the sense of like degrading your experience, but comical Mm -hmm. in the sense that you're coming from an infantry background in the Marines who spent time, no doubt, leading troops in Iraq. Like Mm -hmm. that is crazy to compare and contrast those two things. And and I think probably for those of us who haven't done either of those things, I think uh, probably serves to really put it into perspective how, how much weight is sitting on your shoulders with problems. It's intimidating to to know, to sleep with the knowledge that your program, that the program you're building is going to be responsible for the welfare of a family. And individuals that that is a, a weighty prospect um, it, it's, it's a different kind of pressure from you know engaging enemy contact and, and closing with um, I guess you could say the pucker factor is a little different um, in, in that case but the the responsibility that that we had at the time wasn't wasn't lost on us and everybody really is trying to give their best effort in that moment to to make it happen despite you know how sometimes federal civil servants are are um are shown in 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 the public i think it's very easy as a veteran to complain about service that you get at the va or any related service, whether it be a hospital, whether it be a GI bill, whether any type of VA sponsored service. But it is so encouraging to me to talk to people like you saying that a few episodes ago, I spoke with uh, Maureen Elias, who works at the VA currently. And she just got sworn in, I believe. Um, Yes. Deputy chief of staff, big (laughs) deal. Yeah. Um, yeah, super cool. Um, but talking to those people and you just can see, like when I was talking with her, I could see the light in her eyes talking about giving back to the veteran community. And like, that's who you want fighting for you. Like that's, I, I feel good knowing that we have people like that fighting for us. I feel the same way. And I think the world of, of Maureen, if she's listening, um, good luck <laughs> in, in, in that role at VA. Uh, but they picked a bit, they have a very fine person in, in Maureen. You know, look, I, let's be, so, you know, let's be transparent and honest here. I'm also a, a, a client, quote unquote, of VA. I use the, the I receive a, a disability payment. I utilize the, the hospital side. Navigating VA, it is a labyrinth. It is incredibly difficult. I followed, there was a, a lawyer on Twitter and he started this tweet with, I am one of the world's experts in such and such law. And I have just spent nine months trying to navigate VA. <laughs> And if I can't do it, I can only imagine what somebody who's not a lawyer 
So GA doesn't make it you know, any easier on itself. And for, for those of you who are like, why is it so complicated? I, I don't understand. There's, a, there's an answer to that. Um, number one, you have systems built on systems. So the GI Bill system that, that process payments for literally, you know, processing payments in the bank and sending it to your bank account was built on a coding language that existed before you and I were born. And the system itself was, was uh, built in the 1970s. Um, and because if Congress says you have to enact this now, there's no like starting from scratch. You have no option but to build it on the pre-existing system and to make it work. The other thing is just the, the risk aversion, which comes with, with working in the federal sector. Um, you're often, you know, you could be the subject of, of a lawsuit and you have to be very careful when you are, when Congress passes a law and a change to a program, it goes to VA for it to, to write the regulations around it. And the regulations have to stick within what the congressional intent was. And so they have to be as specific as possible. And that, which leads to very, very burdensome and complicated requirements in order to qualify for a program and time to, to process those, those applications that come in. And finally, when you work at VA, you have, you don't have one boss, you have, uh, what is it, like 438, you have 100 bosses in the Senate, 328 in the House, and any one of them can stop your work with a letter to the secretary or to the White House. So even at that level, it could just, it adds further complexity. So I go back to how I you know, started the answer is the level of complexity and the challenges and the problems that you have to solve really pale in comparison um, in, in, especially in trying to start up a business. Initiating change in any form of government related entity is like incredibly difficult, even when you're a part of it, like mm -hmm. coming in and saying, Hey, I want to change how this is done. Like it, you don't just do that. It's, you know, it takes a lot of firepower and in, in rank and money and all of these things to make that happen. Hearing you talk about a lot of these outdated system is, it sounds like and I'd be willing to bet that there is a lot of systems that the VA uses that are ripe for disruption and waiting for an inspired entrepreneur to come in and redo their payment system or come up with a better way to do things for them. Is... Is that even possible? We're, we're going to talk startups and stuff in a minute, but yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about the integration of those two and how hard that is to do. I think it's possible if VA is willing to accept that as a possibility and they're open to that. I think it is unlikely because of the requirements that the federal government has in, in contracting with the private sector that it is unlikely that a startup is going to be approved for a million or billion dollar contract. 
to, to go in and rebuild those systems. I think it's more likely that a, a more well-established company would be responsible for that. However, there are business opportunities within the margins that I'm starting to see the, the, the startup community fill in. Um, ID.B is a good example. Um, there are some others that I, I, I don't want to mention um, because they are in the startup phase that are kind of dealing with, with benefits um, that, that VA administers. I, I don't see a lot of entrepreneurial activity around the healthcare side of VA because I think it's just so direct. They're actually comparatively, the, the VA's integrated healthcare system performs far better than the private sector healthcare, both in patient satisfaction and in, in outcomes. For, for them, the challenge is getting enrolled in, into it. That's the challenge for us. But I do see opportunities around um, right now there's a lot of work in, in trying to track wellness, performance, and healthcare of athletes at the professional and the collegiate level. I'm very interested to see if there's an opportunity to do the same for the soldier who's deployed and the long-term impact what it's going to have on their wellness and health and their uh, health and well-being. So like I said, kind of within within those margins, I think there's there are areas of opportunity. Um, but I wouldn't get your hopes up on being that you know the next Microsoft is going to get a billion dollar contract with the DOD or, or VA or something like that. Well, let's let's take that as a segue and uh, talk startups for a minute. I'd love yeah. to hear about where you got interested in startups uh, and building your own company. You've yeah. participated in a couple really notable programs, uh, Bunker Labs and Stanford's Ignite program. Yeah, love to hear about your origins there, and then talk about those programs and what they yeah. offer. I'd be happy to. So during my my time at VA. And within the nonprofit sector, I, I heard the, the same feedback from stakeholders over and over, which was we struggle marketing to the military connected community. And they were coming to VA and SVA, um, Student Veterans of America, for help in that. And I thought, you know, I, I think there might be a business opportunity there to teach you how to do that or to help you do that. As a, as a public relations firm. So I'd had this idea uh, of a company that was focused on the military-connected community and representing it for about a, about a decade, really. Maybe like a little less than a decade. I was approaching 40 when I was at Student Veterans of America. And, um, you know, for those of you listening, you're supposed to, you're supposed to date your business idea before you marry it. And I just eloped. I did not do that. <laughs> I, I turned in my two week notice to, to my boss. I said, I'm, I founded this company called Evocati. It's a really weird name. I'll explain it in a moment. And I'm gonna go see if I can do it. 
Uh, and that was in 2018 and, and we're still in business. I do not have a business background. My background is in higher administration and political science. I had no idea what the hell I was doing, none whatsoever, but I had a business idea. So um, I was in a, in a personal position to do that because of the significant support that I had from my spouse and our family. Okay, so I recognize that not everybody can do that. And we can talk about how to be an entrepreneur and manage your, your current job uh, if you want to go into that subject. But evocati is Latin for reservist. And the, the evocatus were the, the first recorded instance uh, in, in classical Rome of a, of a force of reserve. They were retired legionnaires that uh, Emperor Caesar Augustus kept on payroll and they were there at his disposal and they could be recalled to service ostensibly to, you know, to protect the empire, but really to protect the emperor. And they were called the, the evocati. Um, I liked that, that idea because it, you know, it's what I was in the military. Um, and for us in our, in our branding, we didn't, I had a couple rules. I did not want a military themed name. I did not want an eagle in my logo, and I didn't want it to be red, white, and blue. I didn't want to do that. Yeah, be be careful trashing eagles in the logos. I know, I know, because... I know, I know. <laughs> it's all over the place, and I, I I get it. I love them for it. Team uh, R Team RWB has a fantastic brand, and I also didn't want to be in a place where it looked like I was emulating that. I wanted something that spoke to to my own experience. Um, so we, we founded Evocati in, in 2018. Um, and I knew, so the advice that I would give you all who are thinking about doing this is give yourself permission to fail. So I told my wife and myself really that if this company isn't profitable within a year, I'm going to stop and I'm going to go back into the private sector. And it sounds counterintuitive, but that actually took a huge weight off my shoulders. I had a horizon, I had a deadline, I had a goal to reach. And I've just kind of been, I've had that attitude ever since then is give yourself permission to fail in all that you do in this journey. I also knew that I wanted to be the best entrepreneur and the best founder for the company and for the people who would eventually work at Evocati. So I was connected into Bunker Labs and their Veterans in Residence program, which is an incubator program for uh, military-connected entrepreneurs. And I highly recommend those of you listening to go and bunkerlabs.org, look up where your local chapter is and get involved. That's going to provide a a, a network of like-minded entrepreneurs that you can run ideas by, uh, that you can socialize with, that you can, you know, fundraise with and support the growth of your business. Stanford Ignite, their post-9-11 um, uh, program, uh, entrepreneurship and innovation for, for veterans program is an, an intensive uh, masterclass, essentially, 
that is provided through Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Um, it's an MBA in 30 days is how I would describe it. And you are within a cohort of 40 to 50. It is done virtually now. It was, it was done in person on Stanford's campus because of the pandemic, they went virtual. It worked out so well that they're actually gonna maintain a, a virtual uh, class. And you are going to learn the fundamentals of design thinking, entrepreneurship, innovation, fundraising, business valuation, and accounting from literally the world experts. That the, the people that they can bring to the table are the ones who were in the room when Facebook started or Google started. And you're there with them. And I cannot say enough about that program. I highly recommend if you're like me and you feel like you have no idea what you're doing, you, you never went to business school, but you want to learn the fundamentals, that's a great program for you to, to participate in. And to a T, every faculty member we interacted with said, we love this program because we love working with veterans and we love teaching you all and hearing about your, your business ideas. So I can say unequivocally that the, the Stanford faculty that you are engaged with in that program are invested in your success. And these are people who are the, the leading experts in in business. It, that is a, it's a privilege to, to be in that program. So I, I recommend that as well. So I'll stop there. Any other questions about uh, you know, Evocati or, or what that, um, or uh, uh, the, the programs that, that I was involved in? I want to talk some more about Evocati here in just a minute. I have yeah. a couple questions on Stanford Ignite and the Bunker Labs. Yeah. You're talking about Stanford Ignite as kind of a fundamental crash course in business and starting a, starting a business, running a business, fundraising, et cetera. What from the Ignite program did you learn that we can see in your business today? You need to be able to clearly articulate your value proposition to anybody you know that's going to separate you from your competitors it's going to differentiate you from uh your competitors it's going to help you capture leads it's going to help you capture clients or customers it's what you're going to say when you're going to go fundraise it's what you say when you do podcasts like this um it's going to be a talking point that you use in your interview and it has to be clear. It has to be articulate. It has to be understood. Um, Evocati is a public relations company that helps military connected clients research market and grow their investment within the, within their community. That's what we do. Um, and that's our value proposition. So that's one of the things that I took away from Stanford that, I, I internalized and uh, a great value proposition is, is worth every penny and spending time on it is, is worth it as well. Um, the problem, you know, the, 
in addition, or I would say in complement to that is, you know, what's the problem that you're trying to solve, right? And you know, how is that different from your competitors? For us at, at Evocati, we want to help clients, especially clients who are who are in underserved or underrepresented communities, uh, research marketing grow their impact either within their community or without their community, meaning to, to the public at large. And what we've discovered is a lot of the work that's happening locally, for example, if we talk about a historically black college university that's doing really good things for students, that's a very local story. But what we found is there's a national appetite to tell those stories and, and to amplify them as well. Um, it, but to answer your question, I think value proposition is, is, is key. Um, and you can't spend enough time thinking about that. Well, and from what I know and understand of starting a business, I don't think that you can hope to solve a problem if you aren't intimately connected and understand what's driving that, the stakeholders involved and what a potential solution might look like. Because especially with uh, military related things, there are, it, it, we've been around for so long, there are reasons why things are the way that they are. A lot of yeah. rules written in blood and you, you really just need to understand the problem. So I think that that's a good thing to walk away with that program. Yeah, you, uh, it, it requires a, an effective feedback loop between you and your client or, or you and your customers so you're able to respond to their needs. You're absolutely right. I would love for you to kind of walk us down the road of Evocati's value proposition You've kind of explained and articulated a little bit, but I think that the best way to really understand what you guys do in like the sense of like starting a business wise, but then also like as maybe a potential customer, I think it might be helpful if you walked us through the story of you consulting and working with, is it the University of Fayetteville? Mm -hmm. I would love for you to tell us that story and kind of what was your mindset going through the whole, just give us the full spiel on mm -hmm. the University of Fayetteville. Yeah, and, and I apologize. It's Fayetteville State University, Fayetteville. FSU. Um, as I joke with others, the real FSU. Um, so if you're a Seminole listening right now, I'm not going to apologize to you. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. So again, talking about that feedback loop, what we started as was really in kind of consulting. It was built around my own capabilities, right? So a lot of us will start a consulting company and it's really just talking about the things and, and subjects that we know about to, to our clients. And that was in 2018 and 2019 and 2020. What I realized was we had to divide the company into two in order to respond to our client needs, but also to track revenue, uh, as to better track revenue it was coming in. So that's when I created two 
uh, vertically integrated business lines, Evocati Creative, which is the agency of record and the, the PR side of the house and Evocati Growth, which is the consulting side. For Evocati Creative, we serve as your agency of record. And I'll talk about what that looks like in a moment. For Evocati Growth, that is the consulting side where we would come in on a project by project basis to do some type of research or assessment for your company or for your institution. For example, if a school wanted to be able to recruit more student veterans, they needed to understand how do they compare their peer institutions. That's how the opportunity with FSU started was they had a, a chancellor who came in and he was very forward-looking. He understood the value that military-connected students provide, and he wanted to be to take the steps to be a premier institution for all military-connected students, not just an HBCU, but for all schools and students. But he didn't know how his his university compared to his peers in North Carolina and, and across the country. So he contracted with, with us and Evocati to do a, an analysis and a report um, using, I think, like 26 or 28 different variables that showcased where FSU compared to its HBCU peers, as well as its peer institutions within the region. And what we found is that FSU compared favorably, if not exceptional, to all these other institutions in terms of its support for military-connected students. And they published that report, um, and it was, it was very well received. So what the chancellor decided based on that report was to increase his institution's investment into military-connected students. And they came to our company and said, hey, we're gonna make an announcement and we need a PR firm to help us amplify this to the nation. And I was like, well, I happen to have a PR firm. Let's see, let's see what, what's happening. And they told us and they said, we are going to announce that for any undergraduate military connected student, he or she will be able to attend for free, so no tuition fees. I'm talking about you, Brock. I'm talking about your, your future kid or your current kid. I don't know if you have kids. Um, regardless of when you serve. Right. That's a big offer. It's a huge offer. So, of course, on the PR side, we, were, we jumped all like we... That is a very easy sell, as we told them. Like, we're not going right. to have any trouble getting people interested in that. You're um, not coming out and saying you're laying off half the staff. It's right. Uh, <laughs> right. We're giving free school away. Yeah. So we pitched it to um, uh, a very well respected and somebody I admire, uh, a, a reporter at the Washington Post, and she wrote a great story about FSU and announcing this military. Uh, connected. It's, it's a military military scholarship. Can't quite remember the name of it. And we went down to Fort Bragg and we participated in, in announcing it. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking figuratively here, 
the response to that announcement was so overwhelming that their phone lines melted. What I mean is you couldn't, the phone line was so busy, you couldn't even get through to leave a message because people were so interested in this scholarship. And a close colleague at FSU who I've worked with for a while, she recounted a story to us, to our team, and we got very emotional listening to this. But she said she had a Vietnam veteran, father of three, who had no idea how he was gonna pay for school for his kids. And he heard about this through, through our work. Uh, it must've been through a local story or something. And he called to say, they're gonna go to FSU. And now I know how they're gonna go to school. And thank you for opening up this opportunity. It was really wonderful to, to be a part of that. And, and that work continues. How powerful is that? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where we're at today uh, as a company is what I've, what I've been able to observe and looking at down the line is we don't see as much opportunity in the consulting world as we had kind of assumed. And those opportunities are somewhat dependent on um, the health of America's economy, okay? Where we do see opportunity is in being an agency of record and engaging in storytelling opportunities for, for our clients. We think that's going to be uh, the best place and we think that's an opportunity to really disrupt the, the industry. Um, uh, I'm excited about some things that we're going to be sharing soon that I can't share here, but if this you know podcast gets released in um, in August or September, you can go on our website and probably read about it now. How exciting I'll be watching for those things. Did you raise money for Evocati or did you fund self-fund it? Thanks for asking this question because I, this is a, a topic that um, I've noticed in our community, it's not well understood. It's something that I learned a lot about when I was at Stanford. Um, the answer is no. I, I went in with the idea, because I'm a stubborn Marine, <laughs> I went in with the idea of saying, I'm not going to take on any debt financing. I'm not going to do any fundraising, but the company has to stand on its own because I don't know, I guess... I felt like I needed the challenge. There's really no, there, there's no compelling reason for it. It was really just to kind of prove the business idea. So no, we haven't taken on any debt financing. We haven't borrowed any money to build out the company. We do have a, a certain revenue mark that we want to hit <clears throat> before we go and fundraise. And that's certainly something that we are in conversations about today. Where we're at as a company is how do we focus on our core value proposition of, of public relations and where are the areas that we can diversify revenue streams for the company so that we can weather uh, economic downturns and also grow our client base. That being said, there is a incredible ecosystem for military veteran entrepreneurs to fundraise. It's, it's out there. There are VC companies that 
work exclusively on funding veteran startups. And I, I plan to tap into them when, when, when we're ready to do it. And you will find a, a community that is very open and willing to whatever pitch that you want to give, um, as well as connecting you with, with fundraising opportunities. Do you mind calling some of those out? I'd love to include them in the, the show. Yeah, notes hi, uh, can... there's a, a Hivers and Strivers. Um, there's two more. I tell you what, Brock, can I can I email them to you so you can put it in the um yeah the the the, the description? Okay. Yeah, yeah that'd be that'd, that'd be good. great. I don't know how much of this you can share. You said that you were profitable in the very first year. Can you maybe walk us through a little bit of the economics of what an agency business does? If you can share revenue numbers, great. If not, what are you trying to do? You said yeah. that you're looking to hit a certain milestone. Walk yeah. us through kind of some of the economics of the business. Yeah, so uh, I, I won't share uh, numbers, but I will say that we're looking at the the, the seven figure range, right? Seven figures and, and above for for revenue. I have found that trying to determine your pricing model when you're in a service industry for a product industry, you, you can do it, right? Um, for a service industry, especially in PR, it varies wildly. And typically, there are different models out there. You can price it basically your service based on an hourly rate, based on the the associate level of the employee who works on on your PR. Um, there's the retainer model, so they pay a, a fee up front, and then you can use this this company at any time, and then um, they'll just just shoot you an invoice for however many hours that you are billed. Right now, the model that we're doing, which we like, is the subscription model, which is uh, all you can eat um, from the services that we that we offer uh, for a monthly fee. And we offer a warranty for our work. We also say that you can cancel for any reason with 60-day notice. In return, we prefer to have longer-term contracts with our clients because that allows us to build out a very good rapport and relationship with them and it it just means in the end we're much more effective for them and telling your story in terms of the items that we do at, at evocati um our our, our services are, are broken up into to different offerings we have message and material development which is the you know building out your social media uh, building out your your press releases, um, building out um, media advisories, etc. There's uh, uh, straight you know, public relations and media engagement, and that's distributing your releases. That is us getting you placed in publications and getting you interviewed by the media. We're your intermediary between your company and your organization and the media. It's advising you on, on best practices and engaging with the media and NPR. There's a crisis communication component to it. Um, and I'll share an example of that in, in a moment. 
um, uh, then there's uh, strategic planning and, and communication, and that is in the you know, helping you plan out your campaigns and events and, and looking ahead. And then there's stakeholder partnerships and community engagement, and that's tapping into our into our network and to the Evocati brand and in in helping your company make connections to other companies or organizations that you otherwise wouldn't have had uh, without without Evocati. Um, does that answer the, the question? I think so. Uh, I think yeah. that it's good to get a, a bigger picture of all of the different things that this might encompass. Because when you hear that, like that first line, your value prop statement or whatever, a lot of, even I, the first time I heard it, I was like, yeah, what is that? What does that really mean? Like, what, yeah, what does that look like? Right. Yeah. What is the practice of that? But mm -hmm. I think that the example that you gave there of there are a lot of organizations that need to be able to communicate with a population of people uh, that's very very large there's a lot of military connected people and you need somebody to do it yeah. pr is not yeah. not going away it's not and so i'll give you the i'll give you we'll put some numbers to it so if you were to hire uh, every full-time employee that you would need to do what we do at Evocati, um, you're going to pay probably 60 grand a month in overhead. And you can get the same level of service at a higher quality from the experts at a fraction of that. So the value proposition is that instead of trying to do it in-house, um, you can work with a firm that will do it for you. So that's the, the financial value proposition and the, the money that you're going to save as a business owner or even as a, as a nonprofit as well. I have two more questions for you today, Barrett. Mm -hmm. Let's say that Evocati 10X is in the next five years. Mm -hmm. What will you have done and you and your team have done to make that happen? What What is it going to take for you to be successful? Well, um, number one, constantly and consistently questioning our value proposition and whether we're meeting the needs of our customers. We have to be relentlessly focused on that. Number two, to not be afraid to experiment and pivot as a company and responding to those needs. And lastly, that we were able to increase our brand recognition and reputation as a company. I hope if we do 10X, um, in that time that I'm no longer around, that I'm just, you know, the old figurehead and I may come in and, and, and be, you know, like annoying or something like that, but that we've hired somebody else who is far more talented than me um, and far more visionary than me to take it from 10X to even, even further at that time. But that person is a values-based leader and believes in the mission at, at Evocati. My last question 
you kind of alluded to this earlier, talking about the ability to have a spouse that was supporting you. And, you know, you kind of took the leap of faith to jump off the diving board or cliff or whatever, whatever, some kind of tall object into the deep end of starting your own business. That may not be right for everybody. I would love to hear who it is right for and maybe who it isn't. Mm. Coming from a veteran lens. I've never talked a veteran out of starting a business. I've never talked them out of it. I have encouraged them to do it. And the primary barrier to entry was the lack of knowledge and lack of time. Knowledge you can fix. Okay, you can address that. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of courses that you can take. In fact, Bunker Labs has a really good course that you can take to help formulate your business idea. Uh, it's called Launch Lab Online. It's, it's free to enroll. And I actually did that program as well. The time is an interesting thing. What I tell military veterans in, in our community is if you have a, a great idea, um, there is nothing lost in working on that idea as what Todd Connors, the, the founder of Bunker Labs, called as a, as a third shift entrepreneur. And you can do that in your downtime if it's important enough to you. What I would say is it needs to be an idea that captures your imagination because it's something that you're going to pour yourself into. I wouldn't say that there are military veterans not cut out for entrepreneurship because in fact, our community is overrepresented in terms of the number of veterans who own a small business compared to our peers. We do, pair, we do fairly well within the, the small business landscape. I would say this that you need to be prepared for the work ahead. And I'm not gonna discourage you from doing it. And I am more than happy to encourage and mentor you through it, but it is going to be a very challenging thing. And it is gonna require being honest with yourself and your limitations. And that's something that's hard for me to, me to do. Um, and it's going to require constant query and questioning and the pressure that you feel as an entrepreneur to being responsible for people and for the well-being, you've got to be prepared to, to handle that. For me, the best way to navigate that is to be a values-based leader. And you need to understand the values that you will adhere to and that you're not going to compromise in all that you do, but especially within your business. So my values are integrity, wisdom, family, teamwork, and empathy. Those are the five things that I don't compromise on. And those are actually the five corporate values of Evocati. <laughs> so I, I built the company around my values and those are the standards that we start with when we talk about um, working at Evocati in a company. So if you haven't identified what your values are as a leader, I would start there and then go into start thinking about the problem that you want to solve, the service that you want to provide, or the product that you have in your head that really excites you. It is absolutely possible to do that part-time and with the expectation that it can turn into a full-time opportunity. 
So I would encourage anybody who's listening, if, if you think you don't have what it takes or you have a lot of anxiety, I thought that as well. I still have anxiety over, over Evocati and uh, you know, concerned about, are we gonna make it? Uh, that is just part of the, the entrepreneurial journey. And you're, gonna, you're going to realize after you take that dive, when you get down there, you're not alone. Like you're not by yourself. And I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about it in detail with you, Brock. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today, Barrett. Uh, this has been extremely instructive, both historically and in modern day context as well. Yeah. Where can people go to learn more about you, follow yeah. along with you, plug any social you want, Evocati? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're out there and you're listening and you, you have the same problem in your organization in terms of placement, marketing, reach, PR, social media, if you're that one person who's wearing all those different hats in your company and you need help, just visit evocatiollc.com to learn more about what we do. And, and uh, there's a button to contact us in the top right corner. For those of you who want to talk one-on-one -on -one and you're, you're listening and you can identify what things that I've said and you want to learn a little bit more, you can just find me on LinkedIn. Brock, if you want to put my, a link to my profile on LinkedIn on this, that, that's fine as well. Just reach out to me and send me a DM and I'd be happy to connect with you all. That's it. Barrett, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Brock. Thank you. Thank you.